to be cheering later this afternoon. You might as well warm up now. All right. I'm going to talk to you about unity again today. How many of you know unity is crucial? Unity is important. All right. Let's look at uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, and we're going to read a couple of passages on unity. And I want to talk to you today about unity busters. What breaks the unity off of your marriage, off of your home, off of your business, off of your church? What, is a, what are the unity busters that the enemy uses to destroy the unity of something? Well, let's look at Ephesians 4, verse 3. And here it is. Read this with me, everybody, can you? Let's stand for the reading of the Word, and then y'all can sit down the rest of the time. Unless I was to preach you to your feet, and with this message, I'm probably not going to. You're going to be thinking instead of jumping. All right. Read it with me. Strive earnestly to guard the unity of the Spirit in the binding power of peace. Now, that means every one of you. Who's he talking to here? He's talking to the church, not the preachers, not the elders only. Everybody, he says, strive. Make, do your best effort. Make your best effort to guard the unity of the house. Now, Acts 4.32 describes the early church. The Bible tells us the early church turned their world upside down. They moved in such power. Well, what was the secret of their power? Well, here's one of the secrets. Read it with me, can you? All the believers. How many of them? All of them were united in heart and mind. They had unity. They didn't agree on everything. They agreed to disagree with some things. But they had unity of heart and mind. Now, Father, thank you for your word today. And help us as a church to walk in unity. Because, Lord, we believe 2010 is going to be a great year, a powerful year, a, a productive year. And so, Lord, right now, we just inoculate ourselves with the word of God so that we will be resistant to discord, to disunity. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. We'll turn to your neighbor and tell him, you may need this before you get out of the parking lot. <laughs> and speaking of parking, the metal for our new parking has been ordered as well, the steel. So that's all coming too. We're very th uh, thankful for that. Now, I'm talking about unity, not because there's a problem in the house, but so that should the enemy try to, try to get in via discord, uh, we will have knowledge and wisdom about the danger of discord, of disunity, and how to maintain unity. So remember now, we saw last time that unity is essential to the success of any endeavor involving more than one person. In your marriage, you've got to have unity. That doesn't mean that you've got to agree on everything. You've got to learn to agree to disagree in a marriage. But here's one thing you do have to maintain, oneness or unity of heart and mind. You have to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Agree to disagree, but you're still walking in harmony. You're still walking in unity. You're not against one another. You're not divided against each other. And it's the same in a business. It's the same in a church. And Paul is writing this, moved by the Holy Spirit. He's writing to the church, but it trickles down to anything, any endeavor that requires more than one person to reach a goal. If you have disunity, Jesus said, for certain, if there's discord and disunity, it's going to be ruined. It's going to be destroyed. It will not last. A house divided against itself cannot, will not stand. 
It's only a matter of time before that thing crumbles. Now, the Bible reveals that God literally will command the blessing over the presence of unity. How many of you would love for God to look at you and just say, you know what? You don't need to ask me for it. I'm going to command it. I'm commanding a blessing. I'll take that any day of the week. God commands a blessing in the presence of unity. And he calls it the blessing of life. Life flows. Life exists in the presence of unity. And we want life, if, if it's, it needs to be anywhere, it needs to be in the church that claims to be alive by having been redeemed. So we need life. The New Testament continuously exhorts the church to walk in unity, to do our best to maintain unity, and that every member is a guard at the church door. Every one of you are to do your best to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It's every member's responsibility that discord does not get into the house of God. If it does, the testimony of that church is marginalized, the anointing is minimized, and the effectiveness is paralyzed. If unity is lost in the house of God. Now, I believe that God has great things for 2010. This culture is going to go through trouble. But in the house of the Lord that is staying with Jesus, staying with the Word, lifting up His name, worshiping Him in the beauty of the Spirit and in the spirit of holiness and in the Holy Spirit, that church that lifts Him up and presents Him to the world, I believe is going to have an incredible harvest and blessing in the year 2010. As a matter of fact, I'm excited about the year 2010. I believe good things are coming. I really do. And here at Turning Point, we're preparing for it. We're tightening and strengthening the net. We're getting ready because out there, the Spirit of the Lord is knocking on the, on, the, on the hearts of people. He is approaching people. He's convicting people. He's drawing people. He's wooing people. He is waking them up. And they are, they are beginning to wonder about the condition of their soul in the presence of God. They're seeking God. And we are going to be a city set on a hill. We are going to be a light shining into a dark place and get ready because God's going to bring the harvest. He's going to bring multitudes of souls. And so we've got to be in unity, in unity. The Bible says that God hates seven things. He says, six things I hate, seven are an abomination to me. And number seven is he that sows discord among brethren. So God says, I hate discord among the brethren and I will command a blessing over unity. Now the Bible is faithful to expose what Satan uses to destroy and disrupt the unity over anything. What I'm going to share with you today is what he will use against your marriage, what he will attack you with in your business, what he will attack the church with. Unity busters. Now, because of time, I can only share two of them, but I think the two that I'm going to share are his greatest weapons, his most often used weapons against the church. Now, how many of you want to know how to kick the devil out of your home? And I want, to, I want to see you. How many want to know how to kick the devil out of the church? How many want to walk in the blessing of unity in your house where the anointing of God's Spirit abides in your home? All right, let me talk to you now about what the enemy will use to destroy unity. The first one may surprise you. It kind of surprised me, but it's in the Word of God as clear as day. And that is 
selfish ambition. The enemy uses selfish ambition. Now I'm going to tell you what I mean by that after I read what James wrote. James chapter 4, the first two verses. Listen to what he says. He's talking to Christians here. He's addressing the church. So he's addressing you and me. And here's what he says. What is causing the quarrels and the fights among you? Now, I know that you've probably never seen Christians fight. That's a joke. Nudge your neighbor. That's a joke, son. So look what he's saying. To Christians, why are you quarreling? Why are you fighting? What is causing this among you? Now, he didn't even give him a chance to answer. He answers. Don't they come from the wrong, selfish desires that are warring within you? Now, James, by the Spirit of God, is getting right down to what causes discord among the brethren. Fighting, quarreling. He says, it's coming from the wrong, selfish desires that are at war inside of your soul. Now that's powerful because Christians are supposed to walk in peace, right? Christians are supposed to be full of the Holy Spirit, right? So what happened here to these believers? Why are they having a war within themselves? Well, James goes on. Here's what's going on. He said, you want what you don't have. You're comparing yourself to other people. You see what they have and you want what you don't have. Now, That's one thing. I'm I'm looking at somebody, I'm saying, they've got something I want. I don't have it. That's not right. Why hasn't God given that to me? Why hasn't God done that for me? So you got this battle, this envy going on, this jealousy going on, and you're looking in your, and then he says, you make a decision then. So you scheme and you kill. Now, I wondered if kill meant kill with your tongue, kill with gossip something like that but no the word for kill here is actually to murder somebody so he's talking about what was going on inside of these people actually was causing every once in a while somebody to actually kill kill our prisons are full of people who wanted what they didn't have couldn't handle it couldn't trust god envied and and were filled with jealousy and schemed and plotted to get what they wanted and it took killing someone he goes on You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight, you argue, you wage war to take it away from them. You see what someone else has and you want it. A position, a a position of authority, a business, a person they have that you want. You see something somebody else has, money, that new car, that new house. You see what they have. So he's talking about jealousy and envy here, gripping the people. He says, you can't get it, so you fight and you argue and you wage war to take it away from them. And this is believers. Now, let me tell you what he's talking about here. He's talking about the person that is envy-driven. Now, do you know that when you're envy-driven, that is a torment to your soul? To be driven by envy and not to be happy with what God has given you, not to be content. This is talking about the person who has not learned to trust God with what they have and what they don't have, and it is eating them alive that somebody has something they don't have and that they want, and they have not learned to surrender to the Lord everything in their life 
So that God is in control of your promotions. God is in control of what you possess. God is in control of what you own. God is in control of your life. You have not learned. These people did not learn to surrender all and and walk picking up their cross daily and following Him. And so they allowed envy and jealousy to chew them up alive. That's what's happening here. He's talking about people driven by envy, driven by fleshly desires to have what somebody else has. And that is a torment. That is not walking in the peace of God. That is torment. And you know what? The envious person, the envious person always wants more. But the funny thing is, once they get the more, they want more. And once they get that more, they want more. The Bible says the the eye of carnal man is never satisfied. Right? When you get that one thing, you want another. When you get the other, you want the other. Let me tell you how, uh, how you really have joy, happiness, and peace. You surrender everything to Jesus Christ. You allow Him to be the total Lord over every room in your life, every room in your heart, and then He gives you peace. I surrender all is a beautiful song, and there's a beautiful truth in it. You won't have peace until you say, Lord, I trust you with everything in my life. I lay my life down at the foot of the cross. What I have, I thank you for. What I don't have, I thank you for that. Listen, if you can't thank God for anything, you can still thank him that you are saved. He washed you in the blood. He delivered you. He has, he has seated you in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So if you can't think of anything else to thank him for, just say, Lord, thank you that I'm saved. And start there. Just start right there. But these people that James is talking about that bring discord, quarrels, fighting among the body of believers are people that were eaten up with what they did not have. James says that at first the battle is within themselves. They don't have peace. Their various desires toss them around like a troubled sea. They are not content or satisfied with their lot in life. That's them. James' description here of these people reminds me of Isaiah's words when Isaiah said the wicked are like the troubled sea that cannot rest. You look at that ocean out there, tossed to and fro, never placid, never calm, always churning, always tossing. That's the way some people live. God wants your spirit to be like a glassy, placid pond that when a leaf drops on it, you can see the ripples. It is so calm. That's the way God wants you to live. And the only way to live that way is yield your life to Him. God wants you to walk in peace, friend. God doesn't want you eaten up with envy and jealousy. These kinds of people are out to advance themselves. They see what somebody else has. They wish they had it. They can't live with the fact that they don't have it. And they decide to get it for themselves. And that's how the discord and the turbulence gets into the church, gets into the home, gets into the business place. They're after some level or another of personal promotion, believing that if they get it, if they get what they're desiring, then that they'll be happy then. But it never works that way. They never do wind up happy. James said their various lusts and their selfish ambitions throw them into personal turmoil. There has never been a war fought on planet Earth, and there's not a war being fought now that is not envy-driven that is not there because somebody wants what someone else has and don't have it and decide to take it. James says these are selfish desires at war within you. And what does God want in His church? He wants a church full of people that say, Lord, I surrender all 
and I am going to praise you no matter what I have and don't have. I'm not going to fight and climb the ladder and scratch and claw to get what you have not given me. If it's mine, I want, I want you to have given it to me, not me to have taken it. Listen to, to what Peter said about this. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. And he's talking to Christians there. Christians that had not learned to rest in God. I'll tell you, I've, I've learned the hard way through some, some hard knocks and some many years in walking with God that you know what? When God wants me to have it, God knows where I am. He knows my address and He can find me. And when God decides to promote you, not anybody can stop it. No devil in hell can prevent it. When God decides to lift you up and put you into a place, you're going, friend, and nothing is going to hold it back because God is in charge. Satan's not in charge. Flesh is not in charge of you. Promotion doesn't come from the east, the Bible says, and it doesn't come from the west. It comes down from above. And when God says, come up hither, you're coming up hither. He's going to get it to you. So rather than make the person happy and contented, they're made miserable by their continual desires for what they do not have. Now here's what happens. Here they are, they're churning. They're, they're at conflict within themselves. They don't have what they desire. They, they wish they had more. They're, they're not content. They're always reaching, grasping, pushing, scratching to get more. And, and, and there's nothing wrong with ambition as long as the ambition is submitted to God and God's timing. Because I've got ambitions. You ought to see my ambitions for this year. I intend to knock the ball out of the park. You only live once, and we're going to knock the ball out of the park together. There are people that are going to get saved, going to blow your mind. You're going to see some people get saved. You're going to go, I can't believe what I'm seeing. I expect it. You're going to see some people get set free. You're going to say, I, I just, I believe in miracles all over again. I never would have thought. I intend to do it. I have ambitions. But you know what? Those ambitions are submitted to the timing of God and the way of God and, and, and to the will of God. See, so here's what happens. You're walking around with all these things and eventually they break out. These things, these desires, they break out. They don't just remain in you. James says they reach out and they begin to touch other people. As this person tries all kinds of different ways to obtain what they wrongly desire. And this is what brings discord, arguments, battles, and even murder. James is talking to believers here. Powerful stuff. Christians who have not yet learned to give their, their agendas, their desires to God, and selfish ambitions and personal agendas walk into the church all the time. You know why? Because people walk in all the time. And people that have not yet submitted and surrendered to God, they walk in with personal agendas. They walk in with agendas that they have not submitted to the cross, have not submitted to the Lord. They, they want to be in this position or have that authority or do this or do that. They say they want to serve, but in reality, they want to exercise control. Or they want to be in authority over somebody. Or they, have, they, they want some sort of a position. And so they say, I want to serve. You know how you know if they really want to serve? Make them wait. And if they really want to serve, they will very happily wait. Because listen, the person who, is, who has surrendered everything to the Lord is not uptight about timing. 
the person who submits everything to the Lord can say, well, if I've got to wait, that's fine with me because it's not my deal anyway, it's his. See, if I'm up here because I got me up here, then I'm going to have to keep me up here. But if the Lord put me up here, he's got to keep me up here. If I put myself up here, then i got to fight my own battles. But if he put me up here, they're his battles. I want to be where I am by the hand of God, not by my own. So you learn. I, I, this may sound foreign to some of you and, and difficult. Well, Pastor, aren't I supposed to go for things and try? Yes, but there comes a time when you realize that Everything in your life is owned by the Lord. He's your Lord. He's not just your Savior. He's your Lord. And that means what He wants there, that's what you want there. What He doesn't want there, you don't want that there. And so you learn to run everything through the sifter of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Rather than trusting God to promote them, though these people, James is talking about the sow discord, they involve themselves in manipulations, power plays. A lot of the times you'll see in churches all across the nation, People that have a lot of money buying their way into positions, purchasing their way into positions, manipulating, finagling their way into positions. And experience shows me, and I've, I've learned this through the years, that these kind of folks are really good at working people against each other, undermining leadership, doing their best to finagle their way into what they want. And when they're doing these things and playing these church games, then what happens is they sow discord. You've all seen it if you've been in church over a week. You know what I'm talking about if you've been here over a week. See, the church, the church is not one long, continual kumbaya. There are people that walk in. That it's, a, it's a place of blessing, but it's also a battle zone because the enemy is always trying to undermine and, and destroy the unity of a house so that he can get the jugular of that work and hinder the blessing. And that's why I'm inoculating you today with a shot the wisdom of God about how the enemy uses these things. So the bottom line with, with the selfish ambitions that James is saying cause discord and battles and fighting and even killing, he says the, the, the answer is to turn your desires over to the Lord and lay them at his feet and say, Lord, here's what I want, but you know what? You're in charge of my life. A man's gift will make room for him. That's what brings him before great men. So I trust you and your timing and I leave it there. And when you do that, you're a candidate for promotion. Amen? Now, let me move from one to another. The second, the second uh, uh, unity buster that the enemy uses, you will all recognize this one, six-letter word called gossip. Now, grab your toes and say, oh, here it comes. See, I'm already chasing some of them out. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. That was mean. It was an illustration, ma'am. But we don't like hearing about gossip, do we? Do we? It, 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 we know what I'm going to say. But do we really? Now, l listen, let's let James talk once again. This is out of the Message Bible. And uh, listen to what he says about the power of the tongue in James chapter 3. He says, quote, We get it wrong nearly every time we open our mouths. Do you ever feel that way? How many of you got it wrong sometime this week when you opened your mouth? How many of you got it wrong? How many of you wish you could take it back? Have you ever noticed that what you say is like sending an email? You hit send and you can't get it back. Have you ever hit send and five seconds later said, oh, wait a minute, but it's gone into cyberspace. What you say, you can't get it back once it's heard by somebody. 
He says we get it wrong every time we, nearly every time we open our mouths. If you could find someone whose speech was perfectly true, you'd have a perfect person in perfect control of life. A word out of your mouth. Listen to the power of words. A word out of your mouth may seem like no big deal, but it can accomplish nearly anything. What you say out of your mouth can accomplish nearly anything or destroy nearly anything. You can have a great marriage full of unity and with one sentence send that thing into chaos for months. Or you can have a marriage or a business or a church in chaos and start saying some right things and rebuke the chaos right out the door. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And they that know this and understand this will eat the fruit, the good fruit of what they say. It takes only a spark, James goes on to say. It only takes a spark, remember, to set off a forest fire. Just going by a forest and flicking a cigarette out the window, one spark can burn down thousands of acres. He says, a careless or wrongly placed word out of your mouth can do the very same thing. Think about that. He says, he says hell can set the tongue of the believer on fire. That The enemy is looking for that little member in between your two sets of teeth. He wants to get hold of your tongue. You can be as saved as the day is long, but he can still light your tongue on fire with the fire of hell. So that out of your mouth, you're like a fire-breathing dragon. And you devour. And some of you are really good at it. And, I, and this is chief among them talking to you. I used to be, and I can still be, uh, get in trouble with what I say. I used to play lawyer with my kids and with my wife. And I, my whole deal was to win the argument. And there were arguments. We call them healthy spiritual discussions. <laughs> but there were arguments. And what I would do, because God gave me one gift, and that's verbal, what I would do is I would use that gift for wrong. And I would win the argument but lose the war. You see, and some of you men in here, you need to watch what you say at home. You need to be careful what you say at home. Because you can pummel your wife and your children with your tongue. You can pummel them and beat them down. And one day you wake up, you go to work, you come home, all the furniture's gone, and you wonder what in the world happened and why did they leave? Well, it could be that you were pummeling them with your tongue. And some of you ladies, you can tear your husband completely to pieces with what you say. You need to watch out the, the power of the tongue. He says, by our speech, we can ruin the world, turn harmony to chaos, throw mud on a reputation, send the whole world up in smoke, and go up in smoke with it. Smoke right from the pit of hell. Now, James goes on to say, this is scary. He said, it scares me what my tongue can do. It's very frightening to me what I'm able to do with my speech. You can tame a tiger, he says, but you can't tame a tongue. It's never been done. The tongue runs wild. It's a wanton killer. With our tongues, we bless God our Father. We sit in here and we sing. We bless you, Lord. We love you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for our redemption. And get out in the parking lot. Somebody pulls out in front of us. And what we do, we bless those or curse those who have been saved and redeemed by him. We praise him in here. Curse somebody out there. Boy, you could hear a pin drop on a shag carpet right now. But this is the power of the tongue. Everybody say amen or oh me or something. Y'all are making me nervous. You're too quiet. I told you I wasn't going to preach you to your feet. I'm preaching you under the chairs what I'm doing. I'm watching some of you just. 
Watch this. He says, with our tongues, we bless God our Father, and with the same tongues, we curse the very men and women he made in his image. Curses and blessings spew out of the same mouth. He says, my friends, this can't go on. Isn't it powerful? Let me tell you, you may have 20 rifles, pistols, swords, knives at home, but your strongest, most lethal weapon is that tongue in your mouth. Trust me. Trust me. The words you say. Now, did you notice that James says with our tongue we can turn harmony and unity into chaos? And that's why I'm sharing this today. With our tongue. Now, the most common and worst form of tongue transgression is gossip. Let me tell you some things about gossip and then we're going to go home and shout mainly, primarily for the cowboys. The rest of you that are not, we are having an altar call at the end of the service that you will be converted. I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. Gossip. Everybody say gossip with me. Did you know that there's whole, like there's shows on TV, make their living on gossip. TMZ, shows like that, that I detest. I loathe them. You could not pay me to watch it because they're making their living on destroying the lives of other people by gossip. Now, if you watch it, God bless you, I guess. <laughs> but there are papers, there are magazines, there are television shows make their living, make big money, that their whole careers are dedicated to gossip. That to me is very, very sad. Gossip is an equal opportunity destroyer. Gossip fans the fires of hell in a business, in a home, in a church. Gossip fans and releases hell. Wise King Solomon had a lot to say about the damage that gossip can bring. Let me just share a few of the verses from Solomon on gossip. Here's the first one. The words of a gossip are like choice morsels. They go down to a man's inmost parts. Translated, gossip-driven words are hard to shake once you've heard them. You ever notice that? Because when you hear a gossipy word about another person, your spirit man ingests what you heard. It digests it, and it becomes a part of you. It's very hard to shake what you heard when it was gossip. Now, here's another verse. A gossip goes around telling secrets, but those who are trustworthy can keep a confidence. Translated, if you want it on the front page of tomorrow's newspaper, tell a gossip. If you want it to get out, there are people that are happy to oblige you, and they are, uh, they are in the church. It's been said that the church has a grapevine Ernest and Julio Gallo would envy. And I think that's true. Now, here's another one. A gossip betrays a confidence, so avoid a man who talks too much. Translated, a gossip will spill the beans all the while telling you your secret is safe. How many of you have ever been burned by a gossip? Raise your hand high. Well, you hadn't lived until you had been barbecued by the church. The church will slice you and dice you and barbecue you all in the name of Jesus. Now, here's another one. Fire goes out without wood and quarrels disappear when gossip stops. Translated, when gossip walks out the door, trouble leaves with it. When there's trouble in a home, trouble in a business, trouble in a church, you can almost always track it to gossip. You can almost always track it to somebody's talking somewhere and the flame is spreading and that's where the trouble is coming from. So the Bible says remove the gossiper and the trouble will stop. 
When gossip is on the loose, it does this. The consequences go something like this. Very important. Watch this. If you listen to gossip, gossip first sows mistrust among brethren. When you hear something that is, that is loaded about another person, that is personally sensitive about another person, the very first thing, especially if it's a negative report, an evil report, a bad report, it sows mistrust immediately. You start mistrusting. You see that person, and there is a level of mistrust because of what you've heard. But mistrust never sits alone. It's not stagnant. It grows. Mistrust then creates suspicion. Now that I've heard these things about you, not only do I mistrust you just a little bit because of what I heard, but now I'm starting to get suspicious about you, your motives, what you do, how you act, how you live. And then suspicion plants a wedge of separation. You ever notice this happen in a marriage? Something is said, something is done, suspicion comes, and before long, that suspicion grows into a wedge of separation. And that's what the enemy is after. The enemy knows that the church or a marriage or a business is just like a fire in a fireplace. When the logs are together, the fire rages and roars, and the church is the same way. When the people are together, loving one another, walking in unity, the fire of zeal and the fire of the Holy Ghost rages and roars and lights up the dark. But if you remove the logs from each other, that fire will quickly and soon die. That's why you poke those logs with a poker, because you know, I've got to keep them together, I've got to keep them close, and that's how the fire burns. So the enemy comes into a church or a marriage or a business and sows this mistrust, these suspicions, and then the separation separates the players, and separation destroys loving affection. How can I have loving affection towards you if I don't trust you, if I'm suspicious of you, and if I have been away from you so long that the affection is now dying? Then the enemy says, done. The enemy's motto is divide and conquer, divide and conquer, divide and conquer. And if he can divide successfully, Solomon says that a gossip even has the power to separate the best of friends. You can take a lifelong friendship and destroy it by gossip. When gossip has run its course, what was once a life-producing fellowship of joy and affection is now but an iron fortress of suspicion, mistrust, dislike, and defeat. And what a shame. Because here's a skeptical world looking in and saying, if that's what God did for you, or better put, to you, I don't know if I want your God. Now here are three simple guidelines, and I'm going to close to consider before you say something about somebody else because you're all going to have the chance before you leave today. On the way home, you got a good chance. Well, what you think of that message? Well, you know, I thought he got pretty tough. <laughs> I'm kidding. You're going to have a chance before the end of the day to gossip about somebody. Now, listen, here's what you do. Before it comes out of your mouth, you ask yourself first, is it true? Is it true? Is it true? The Bible says that he that answers a matter before he hears both sides, it's a shame and a folly to him. There's always another side. If you've ever done marriage counseling, man, you get with that first person, by the time they're done, you believe that their spouse is a devil. But then you get that devil in, and you let them talk a while, and you realize, well, that other one's got some horns too. And it's never one way. Now watch this. There's always another side. And so it's much, much better to dig for facts than jump to conclusions. If you're about to say something about somebody, ask yourself, do I know this to be, is it true? Do I know it to be true? Is it the truth or is it hearsay? Is it rumors? Is it true? 
And then the second thing you ask yourself is this. Is it edifying? Now I'm about to talk to somebody about somebody else. Here it is. It's right there. I can feel it. I want to say it. You ask yourself, is it true? And then is it edifying? How is this going to affect the listener? If it won't edify, should I say it? Well, listen to Ephesians 4. Let no unwholesome talk ever come out of your mouth, but only such speech as is beneficial to the spiritual progress of others. That it may be a blessing and give grace to those who hear it. What a powerful word. So is it edifying? Should it be? Well, if you're not a part of the problem and you're not a part of the solution, it's gossip. Now, sometimes people who are a part of the problem and part of the solution do need to get together and talk about what is true. And what you've got to talk about is not edifying. It's not good things. But see, it's different when you're a part of the solution or a part of the problem. You've got to talk about it. So you get together and because you have the ability to fix it or you were involved in the problem, you've got to talk about some things that aren't pretty. But if you're not a part of the problem or a part of the solution, it's gossip. So is it, is it true and is, is it edifying? If I say this to this person, what's it going to do to them next time they see the one I'm about to talk about? Third question, is it necessary? Is it necessary? Why say it? Do I really need to say it? Well, but it, I know it's true. Well, just because it's true doesn't mean you've got to say it. Are you all there today? Listen now, just because it's true. There's a lot of things that are true. But is it necessary to say? Is my listener a part of the problem? Are they a part of the solution? Is it necessary that I say this about a person? Because death and life are in the power of the tongue. It may be very totally true, but it's over with. So, so now, if, if, if it doesn't matter to the person I'm about to talk to, if they aren't a part of the problem or solution, and I say it, then they have become tainted and defiled and died, D-Y-E-D, by what I said about this. So the next time they see that person, they're going to see them through the lens of what I said. Is it necessary? If the blood has washed it all away, if the people involved are forgiven, then why say it? Do I agree with the accuser or do I agree with the forgiver? The devil is the accuser of the brethren. That's his profession. Do I side with the devil and join him in his accusing of the brethren? Or do I walk in what the Lord has done in their life and forgive them and move on and don't talk about it? Well, the answer is there's a lot of things that just aren't necessary. So is it true? Is it edifying? Is it necessary? Now, if you run that through, any time you're about to talk about someone, run it through that sifter. There's a lot of things that you won't say. It'll be like this. You want to say it? Oh, it hurts to not say it. It's all over you to say it. Oh, I need to say it. I feel led to say it. And then you go and you call people. I have a prayer burden for you. <laughs> say, there's, there's a way for me to get around this. Turn it into something spiritual. It's a prayer burden. So you call about 30 different prayers and you say, listen, I know you're not a part of, problem, part of the problem or the solution, but I know you're a prayer. So there's something I just need to say. I'm so burdened about brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so and you blah. And you know you're not telling them because you want them to pray. You just want to tell it.
<laughs> it's very, very possible to tell an intercessory prayer. You don't need to know all the facts. Just pray, and they can get through. Because guess what? God doesn't need for them to tell him all the details because God never says, well, I'll be. Let's stand together, can we? Well, God is good. So notice that the two unity busters in a church or a family or a business are these. Selfish ambition that is not crucified and gossip that comes out of your mouth. So we have been inoculated today. We have light, we have wisdom, and we're going to walk in that. Father, we just thank you today for the wisdom of God, the unity of the Spirit. Help us to walk in unity and wisdom in the year 2010 to be spiritually mature and not crucify others, to be spiritually mature and give our ambitions, our aspirations to the Lord, to be worked out in His way and His timing. Now, will you take a minute today and if there's somebody that you, you said something you shouldn't have said, I've done it. I did it this week. And I, I had to repent. It's so easy to do. It's too easy to do. But as long as we repent and want to do right, God will help us to get far greater discipline over what we say. So if you did it this week, can you just say, Lord, forgive me? Maybe you said something to your spouse or your kids. Maybe you gossiped about your boss about a co-worker, about a friend, about somebody in church, about church leadership, about a life leader. Just something came out that shouldn't have. Say, Lord, forgive me and help me in this year to honor you with what I say. Take a minute and pray. We're going to sing one stanza. Thank you, Lord. Give the Lord a hand today. And Kathy, come on up.